<clears throat> I've enjoyed it and uh, thank the Lord for what God is doing here at Shadow Mountain and uh, believe that he has uh, great days ahead as well as we stay faithful to him. Take your Bible, let's go to Second Kings chapter 5, Second Kings <clears throat> and the fifth chapter this morning for our text. This is an amazing story to me in the scriptures and has so much uh, for us to learn from. Second Kings chapter 5, start reading with verse 1. The Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent messengers unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times. And thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near, and spake unto him, and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Have you ever been sincerely wrong? It was Thanksgiving time. And uh, my family, we were discussing where we would go for Thanksgiving. You know, you have options as your kids get older. My oldest two kids were married and, and in ministry, one in Central California, one in Southern California, and and uh, so we began to discuss, you know, are we going to go to one of their houses? Are we going to have everybody come to our house? You know, what are we going to do for Thanksgiving? And as we were discussing these things, my daughter-in-law 
who at that time, she and my son were living in Fresno, California. She said, why don't you come to Fresno? I mean, I have a big family. She has nine, nine siblings. And she said, we always have a big time at Thanksgiving. Lots of people over. My grandparents come, etc. And they would love to have you come and join us. Well, we thought about that. And I said, now, if we're going to Fresno for Thanksgiving, we've got to leave early. Because Thanksgiving is two things. Food and football. I mean, you're supposed to be grateful, but somewhere in there. But, but food and football, right? And if you live in Pacific time zone, you, you, ha- you have to get up early because football starts at 9 o'clock. And so I said, if we're going to Fresno, I'm not missing the game. We're going to have to leave at 6 o'clock sharp because it's 200 miles and there's no way to cut it any shorter. It takes three solid hours to get to Fresno. So I said to my son-in-law down in Rancho Cucamonga, Southern California, I said, if you're coming... You're going to have to come up Wednesday night after church. You know, you get your service done, you come up, and you can spend the night here because we got to leave at 6 a.m. So that's what they did. They came up Wednesday night, got to our house about midnight, and I'm, sh- I'm shooing everybody to bed. Get to sleep. Go to bed because we're leaving at 6. And 5 o'clock, I'm up playing revelry. You know, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And we had food to take and two cars, you know, Ben's going to drive and I'm going to lead. And and so we're packing the cars and six o'clock, we rolled out of that driveway right on time. We made our way through Lancaster out to Highway 14 and headed north up to Mojave. We got to Mojave and we got on 99 and traveled west over to Bakersfield. Bakersfield's about the halfway point, about the 100-mile point. And I looked at my watch. We're right on time. And Ben, a good son-in-law, is right behind me, just keeping up. And everything's going great. We get on 99. We start north. And, and uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving morning. Not a lot of traffic. Good weather. And we're making good time. But when you get to south of Fresno, you gotta, you got you to be alert. Because the 99 keeps going north all the way up through California, but the 41, it angles over toward Yosemite National Park. Well, it's that 41 that I want because the Averbecks, they live uh, in Clovis, which is on the east side of Fresno. So I want to take that 41. So I'm watching for it, and I see it, and I'm watching Ben in my mirror. And, and that we get off, and he, he gets off, and, and we started up the 41. Again, right on time. We get, to, we get to Clovis, and I'm looking for Shaw Avenue. That's my exit. We get off on Shaw. We go down the ramp. We go under the interstate. I'm looking for Toys R Us. That's my landmark, right? And I get to Toys R Us. I turn right. Now, you only go down that street about a quarter of a block where you come to Scott Avenue. That's the street the Averbecks live on. So I turn right. Ben's right behind me. It's like five minutes to, to nine. We are going to make kickoff. We turned on Scott. We got to the Averbeck home, but there was no place to park. There were cars parked up and down that, that street, I mean, everywhere. And I thought, i got to have two parking spots. And I began to, I began to panic a little bit. I, I, I began to drive, and we're looking. And finally, about two blocks from the house, we found a couple of spots. We parked. But now I'm, I'm anxious. You know, we got two minutes to kick off. And so I'm pulling stuff out of the trunk and throwing it at people. Here, carry this, carry this, carry this. And I grabbed a bunch of stuff, and I started walking as fast as I could to the Averbeck home about two blocks away. And a whole trail of people behind me. We got to the Averbeck house, and I walked up the sidewalk to the front door. I did not ring the bell. I did not knock. I mean, they know we're coming. And I just went right through that door. 
As I entered the house, there was a table set in the front room of that house, beautifully set. I mean, they had a centerpiece of flowers, they had candles, they had glassware and and silverware. I mean, just beautiful. And I thought, man, they went all out. But I didn't see anybody or hear anybody. And so I started down along that table toward an opening in in the room. And as I'm walking along that table, I said, hey, where is everybody? We're here. And a lady I'd never seen before in my life (laughs) poked her head around that opening, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, whoops, wrong house. (laughs) We started backing up, backed out of that door, down the sidewalk. I was only one house off, but I was sincerely wrong. You know, a lot of people are sincerely wrong about the way to go to heaven. There are people who are sincere. There are people in church today. People who are religious. In fact, some 80% of Americans claim to be spiritual. Now, less than 50% claim to be Christian. But but, but people, they they have a spirituality. They have a a religious bent. They they think about God or God. Maybe the Bible, they, they have a, a sincerity. It kind of reminds me of the people in Paul's day who he said, uh, uh, my, uh, I have an earnest desire for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, because they have a zeal toward God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness which is of God. You see, a lot of people are sincerely religious. They sincere, they're sincere about what they believe. But is it according to God? Now, here in this passage before us, we see some simple steps from I thought in verse 11 to I know in verse 15. Now, you might say today, well, I, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I, I think... I'm saved. I I think when I die, I I will go to heaven rather than hell. But did you know you can know that? You can know that you're saved. You can know that your Redeemer liveth, and that the last day, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. You can know that. So let's look at some steps from I think to I know. First of all, as we look at this man Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, We see a blot on the record. If I asked you to describe a sinner, how would you describe a sinner? You might say, well, it's somebody that's wicked. Somebody that does bad things. Someone that does things that God doesn't approve, you know, like a murderer, or someone who's, who th- who's a thief, or someone who, who rapes somebody, or, you know, somebody that maybe destroys himself with drugs or alcohol or something. That, that, that'd be a sinner. Well, let's look closely at this man, Naaman. I see that he was a courageous leader in verse 1. It says, now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria. This man was a courageous leader. He's captain of the army. Not only is he a courageous leader, but we see he had a commendable legacy. The Bible says there that he was a great man with his master. If your boss said you're a great employee, that would say a lot right there. 
He was a great man with his master. He had a reputation. He had some integrity. He had a good work ethic. He was not only that, he, was a, he had a conscientious labor. The Bible says there that by him deliverance had been given unto Syria. This man was no slouch. This man had won some battles. This man had delivered his nation from the enemy. He was a conscientious man who had produced in his work. But he was a leper. A condemning leprosy. We are not confronted a whole lot with leprosy here in the United States of America. It's not a disease we talk about or think about a whole lot. There are places in the world today where leprosy is still very common. I had the privilege of preaching several times on the island of Okinawa, Japan. And in Okinawa, there's a, a man in one of the churches. His son graduated from West Coast. And, and uh, he always likes to kind of show me around a little bit when I'm there. He's a native of Okinawa. And, and uh, one day as he was touring me around to his, his boyhood area on the island, he said, uh, hey, I want to take you over to Leprosy Island. We go over to this place. This is where the lepers were, were kept during World War II. They were placed on this island. They were basically just left there. You can go in the caves that they literally dug with their own hands to hide from the bombings. It's an amazing place. But there's still a sanitarium there where the lepers are kept. And as we were talking with the man in charge, he said probably the worst thing about dealing with the lepers is when you take the bandages off of their they're, they're open sores. He said the hardest thing is to watch the maggots crawl out of the skin. You see, leprosy is a disease that the Bible in the Old Testament uses as a type or an illustration of sin. Because leprosy is something you don't know you have when it begins. It's maybe like a cancer today. You would maybe could live many years and not know that you had a cancerous tumor or something until it exposes itself in some way. Leprosy works like that. It starts underneath the surface. In the Old Testament, if someone had a little white spot on their skin or a little sore that wouldn't heal, they were commanded to go to the priest and let him look at it, and he could determine whether it was leprosy or not. And if it was determined to be leprosy, you had to go into isolation in Israel. You were not allowed to go back to your family or go to work. You had to sit outside the gate of the city. And if anybody came near you, you were to put your hand over your mouth and cry, unclean, unclean. Leprosy was a horrible disease that destroyed a person from the inside out. That's what sin does. At the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And when our heart is sinful, it eventually exposes itself on the outside, doesn't it? And so here was a condemning leprosy. Do you know that all of us have this disease of sin? We were born with it. David said, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. From the sole of our foot to the top of our head, there's no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They're not closed. They're not bound up. They're not mullified with ointment. As is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. None that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. We're all. as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a, as a leaf in the wind, and, and our iniquities have taken us away. There's none that calleth upon God. There's none that stirreth up himself to take hold of God. You see, we're, we're sinners. We're condemned before God this morning. 
But I want you to see not only a blot on the record here, but I want you to see a believer in the regime. Look at verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife, a believer in the regime. Here was an unnamed captive. This is one of the no-namers in the Bible. There are lots of them. And this is one of the, the, the little heroes in the Bible who God did not pen her name. We don't know how old she was. We assume perhaps a teenager, maybe a little bit younger. But she's taken captive in one of the raids of Naaman. They bring her back and Naaman decides to make her a slave girl in his own home. She takes care of Naaman's household. Just this little girl, a captive, a slave. I don't suppose her life was very easy. Imagine taking care of a leper. Imagine changing the bed each morning. I mentioned Isaiah 64, 6 a moment ago. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Those filthy rags refer to the rags the lepers would use to, to try to get the dead skin off of their body. They would scrape their, their arms and their legs to get the dead skin off of their bodies. They were called filthy rags. Imagine cleaning up after this man who had this horrible disease, washing his clothes, changing his bed, exposed to this horrible disease, and yet she was faithful. She was faithful to where God had placed her in spite of the the difficulty, in spite of the, the discouragement. Here she was, faithfully serving Naaman's wife. Sometimes life deals us a hand that we don't like. Sometimes life uh, brings some difficulties or trials into our life, and we say, God, what are you doing? God wants us to be faithful during those times. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. God desires we be faithful. And this little unnamed captive has an upward confidence. Did you notice what she said here in in verse number 3? She said to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, Would God that my lord Naaman were with the prophet Elisha that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. She has an upward confidence that Naaman could be healed if if he could just get to the prophet in Samaria. Now, I want to remind you, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet. But he said only one of them was healed. And that was Naaman. So of all the people that were lepers in the Old Testament, not one of them was ever healed. There was no cure. There was no vaccine. There was no surgery. There was there were no treatments. Only one person in the Old Testament was ever healed of leprosy. And that's this guy, and it took a miracle. But this little girl says, it can happen. It can happen. If he would just get to the prophet in Samaria. Where's your confidence this morning? Is your confidence in God? Or is your confidence in, in yourself or the government or your job? Where's our confidence? It's better to put your confidence in the Lord than put confidence in men. Better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. 
Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, in the sides of the north, the city of the great King. Ah, Lord God, He's the eternal God, He's the, He's the righteous God, He's an everlasting King. And with God, nothing's impossible. With this confidence, we see an unabated compassion. She speaks to her her boss, her Naaman's wife, and she says, somebody needs to go and get this man to Elisha. She, she speaks out. You know, I don't know if a slave is allowed to speak. I don't, I don't know if it was common for a slave to give advice to the master. But, but she has an unabated compassion. She, Naaman was the one that ripped her away from her family. Naaman was the one that invaded her country. Naaman was the one who caused this war that, that split her family up. And here she is with a compassion toward this man. What a demonstration of our Savior who came to this world to seek and to save that which is lost. What, a, what an illustration of Jesus who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, we can look at our world today and we can kind of write it off as Christians and say, well, they're all wicked and they're all, they're all lost and they're all in sin and, and I just want nothing to do with it. But where's our compassion? Perhaps God is allowing us to live in a wicked and crooked and perverse generation for the very reason of being a testimony to let our light shine. Did you know that all of the darkness in this world cannot put out one light? One light can expel a lot of darkness. Let your light shine. That men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. On some having compassion, making a difference. Do we care enough about our co-workers? Do we care enough about our family members? Do we care enough about the lost? To have compassion and make a difference. Here was a, a slave girl who showed compassion toward what could have been her enemy. But through the love that God had given her, she reached out in that compassion. And notice what happened. Now, a belief is required. In verse 10, the Bible says, Elisha sent a messenger unto him. So, so Naaman comes. But if you read this passage, you can read it a hundred times, and you'll realize that Naaman and Elisha never meet. So he goes to the house of Elisha, but a belief is required. And, and, and Elisha sends a messenger to him and says, go wash in Jordan seven times. He's asking him to put his faith in his word. Belief is required. Now, our sin is not a big problem to God. God has already paid the price of our sin. God has already taken care of the payment. But the solution to, of salvation doesn't come our way. It doesn't come in the way we think it's going to come. We think, well, if I, I'm a good enough person, if I go to church, if I have a religion, if I, if, maybe if I give some money to the poor or something like that, then God will have to let me into heaven. But notice here, wealth is fleeting. Naaman brings all this stuff. He brings the silver, the gold, the changes of raiment. Why is he carrying all this stuff with him? Well, he's going he's to give it to the guy who can heal him. He's going to try to pay for his healing. 
And a lot of people today think, if I, if I do this, if I do that, then God will allow me to come to heaven. But wealth is fleeting. You can't buy a gift. You, you can't pay for a gift. And salvation is the gift of God, which is eternal life. So our wealth is fleeting, knowing this, that we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Mere vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So wealth is fleeting, work is futile. Naaman goes to great effort, he makes a long trip, he's probably not a, a, a well man, this leprosy has overtaken his body and yet he's willing to sacrifice, he's willing to ride, he's willing to go this distance to see Elisha. And a lot of people go to great effort to somehow get to heaven. Going to church, doing good things, but the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. You see, in Romans eleven six, it says, if by grace, then it's no more work. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be of work, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. All of the religions in this entire world right now that have ever been or ever will be are one of two things. Every religion teaches you go to heaven either by faith or by works. Now, God says it can't be both. Because if by grace, it's not of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. So if it's a gift, you can't work for it, because the minute you work for it, it's no longer a gift. And if it's works, then you can't call it a gift, because the minute you call it a gift, you can't work for it. So if by grace, it's no more work, otherwise grace is no more grace. If it's work, it's no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. So what is it? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells what it is and what it isn't. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So work is futile, witchcraft is false. In verse 11, he says, uh, uh, I thought he'll come out, he'll, he'll strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He thought this guy will come out, whoever he is, and, and have his magic wand, he'll, 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 uh, Move his magic wand over me and say, Abracadabra, Fooey Louie, be healed, you know. Isn't it amazing the number of people that will believe in the force or karma or some supernatural kind of luck? He thought, man, you know, something, some power, some astrology, some, some kind of spiritualism. You know, when you read the Bible, not one time did Satan ever win against God. Now, Satan has great power. And sometimes in the Old Testament, he could duplicate even the miracles that God was doing, like in the time of Pharaoh. He could duplicate, but there was a point where God had the upper hand, where Satan could not duplicate those miracles. There's not one demon in the New Testament that ever won against Jesus Christ. Never. You see, witchcraft is false. Remember, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. One day the devil, all of his demons, will be cast into a lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. He shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. But while wealth is fleeting and work is futile and witchcraft is false, God's word is faithful. He says, go and wash in the Jordan. 
Go and wash in the Jordan. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You see, when God speaks, God's word has power. God's word can change your life. But there's a battle of resolve going on here. Isn't it amazing how when God speaks to us, our first response is kind of no. It's kind of human nature, isn't it? It's part of our sin nature. When God, when God tells us to do something, we're like, no. It's immediately a negative response. And there's a battle here going on in verses 11 and 12. There, there was an infuriated response. In verse 11, Naaman was wroth. It says later, he went away in a rage. We don't like being taught, told that we're wrong when we've been so sincere and we've worked so hard and this is all we've ever known. How can this be wrong? The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. The preaching of the cross is them that perish. Foolishness. So an infuriated response and an ignorant reasoning in verse 11. He thought it will happen this way. I thought. But God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I was out soul one day and there was a lady... I could see her around back behind her house, and she was uh, putting some clothes on a line to dry. And, and uh, so I, I saw she was out there, so I kind of made my way around the side of the house and greeted her from a distance. I said, good morning, how are you? And, and uh, she stopped, looked up, and took a few steps toward me, very friendly and all. And, and I said, I'm from, you know, the church, and would like to invite you to our services. And she was quite eager to get the invitation and all, and and I said, uh, ma'am, are you a Christian? She, she was acting very happy and uh, smiling and very, very uh, eager toward my message. I said, ma'am, are you a Christian? Oh, of course I'm a Christian, she said. I said, ma'am, how does a person become a Christian? She thought a minute. She said, well, I, I think it's by keeping the golden rule. You do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I said, oh. Well, do you keep the golden rule? And she said, oh, no, nobody can. I said, ma'am, it it doesn't sound like God loves us very much. I mean, if the only way we can get to heaven is by doing unto others as we'd have them do unto us, but none of us can do it, it doesn't sound like God loves me much. If he's created a way to heaven that no one can do. You see, we have this... Ignorant reasoning in our, in our minds that if, if I do this, if I'm this way, God will take me to heaven. And then we come up with an inferior replacement in verse 12. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? In other words, I'm not, I'm not going to get in this dirty Jordan River. If you ever go to Israel, I met a lady the other day and she said, I'm going to Israel. And I said, well, good, you'll really enjoy it. She said, I'm going to get baptized in the Jordan River. I've been saved now, and I I want to wait and get baptized in the Jordan River. I said, okay. I said, make sure you take a wetsuit. She said, what do you mean? I said, that that water's really dirty. The Jordan River's a dirty river. And and this man named, and he looks at this river, and he says, I'm not going to get in there. I'm not doing that. If that's the way to heaven, then I'll go back to my own country. I'll dip in those waters and be clean. We come up with this replacement. 
You know, salvation is way too simple. I mean, you can't believe that just because you asked Jesus to be your Savior that you could possibly know that you're going to heaven. And we think there's got to be more to it. There's got to be something else. But notice as we close, a blemish removed. Verse 13, his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? You know, if you could show me after the service today a verse in the Bible that says that in order to get to heaven, you got to cut off your right arm. If you show me a verse that says, cut off your right arm, you can go to heaven. I'm going to do it. I'd rather go through the rest of my life without a right arm than go to hell. I would do a great thing. If you could show me a verse in the Bible that says you've got to have a million dollars in your checkbook when you die or you can't go to heaven, I'm getting a third job tomorrow. I already got two. I'll get a third. I want to go to heaven. I would do a great thing. People will crawl on glass to try to impress God. People in India, they, they allow these, these hooks to be placed in their back and then they're suspended by these cranes for hours. And you ask them, why are you doing this? To appease one of the thousands of gods we have to appease in order to go to heaven. In the Philippines, there's a man who gets crucified every Easter, every Good Friday. He, he gets nailed to a cross. He's done it 22 straight years. And if you ask him, as one of my friends did who photographed it, he said, why are you doing this? To pay for my sins. After he hangs there three hours, they put him in an ambulance. He goes, he recovers, it takes him a whole year, and then the next year he does it again. People will do a great thing to get to heaven. And this man was willing to do a great thing. He had brought all this gold, all this silver, all these changes of raiments. He was willing to pay a huge price. They said, you're going to leave? You're just going to go away in a rage? When he's asked you to do just a simple thing, go in the Jordan and wash. It's an amazing fact. But notice the act of faith in verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan. And notice this, according to the saying of the man of God. And I remind you, he still hasn't met Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger unto him and told him these things. And I meet people say, well, if God would just show up in my bedroom tonight and tell me how I'm supposed to go to heaven, I would believe it. He already sent you a message. He's given you the Bible. And he's given pastors to preach the Bible. And, and, and here, here Elijah, Elijah is just saying, thus saith the Lord, believe it. And now by faith, he steps into that water and he washes. And the Bible says... There came an astonishing freedom. In verse 14, it says, As he did this, his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. How old do you think Naaman was? The Bible doesn't tell us how old Naaman is. But i got to guess he's at least in his 40s. You don't become captain of the army the day after you join the ranks. Now you got to work your way up. So you got to believe this guy's at least 40, maybe even 50. He's obviously not been a captain his whole life, so he's been out there fighting battles. He's got some wounds. He's got some scars. His hands are calloused from fighting and so on. He's probably got a few blemishes on his body. He's got some brown spots maybe. 
He's got some wrinkled skin. He's been under some stress. But when this man gets down in that water, according to what God said, when he comes up out of there, his flesh is like the flesh of a little baby. Can you imagine those, those soldiers that are with him? Man, is that you? Your wrinkles are gone. Your tan is gone. Your calluses are gone. This man came like the flesh of a little child. That's exactly the beautiful picture of salvation. When God saves us, He doesn't kind of slap some makeup on, you know, kind of touch it up, or a little bondo on the car and paint over it. No. God throws it all away, and He starts brand new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, literally a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Wouldn't you love to have that freedom today of knowing my sins are forgiven. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm on my way to heaven. I was serving as an intern in Minneapolis, Minnesota between my sophomore and junior year in college. We did a vacation Bible school and and uh, picked up boys and girls to come on a bus to come to these services. And we picked up a little girl named Elaine John. Elaine was about nine. Sweet little girl. And uh, she was just so uh, obedient. She sat on that bus, never, never made a noise, just kind of quiet. And she came that first day to Bible school, and she was wonderfully saved. Her family was Catholic background and and uh, so she went home, and she knew that her parents probably would not allow her to go to church at this place where the Bible school was, but she came back every day to that Bible school, and she got so excited about her newfound faith in Christ as a little nine-year-old girl, she asked her sister Chris to come with her toward the end of the week. Now, Chris was a year younger, and Chris was a monster. I mean, that girl... If, if, if there was mischief, she found it. On the bus, she couldn't sit still. She's all over the place. She's loud. She's boisterous. She won't obey. Chris was just exactly the opposite of Elaine. But Chris came and got saved. When Elaine got saved, nothing much really changed. She was already an obedient, wonderful little girl. But when Chris got saved, whoo, there was a change. Well, when Chris got home, and told her parents, her parents, Elmer and, and uh, Joanna John, said, we better check this out. So the next Sunday, they showed up at church with their girls. And for the first time in their life, they heard the gospel. And as soon as they did, they stepped out of their seat and came and trusted Christ as Savior. Wonderfully saved. Well, their oldest son, Glenn, was in seminary. He was studying to be a Catholic priest. And a few months later, he came home for a weekend visit. And, and his parents, on Saturday night, they said, uh, Glenn, uh, we're going to church tomorrow. Would you like to go with us? Well, he was kind of surprised because the Johns were Catholic, but they weren't real faithful in their attendance to church. And, and he, being a, uh, someone studying for the priesthood, he was pretty happy that his parents were going back to the church. And so he said, of course, I'll go with you. They didn't bother to tell him it was a Baptist church. And so Glenn came that next Sunday morning to the Baptist church, heard the gospel, and was wonderfully saved. He went back to seminary, and he told his younger brother, Brian. He said, Brian, are you going home anytime soon? Brian said, yeah, I was thinking about it. He said, you, 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 you should. I went home last weekend, and mom and dad are going to church. Brian said, they are? 
I said, yeah. Well, next weekend, Brian decided to go home. Check this out. And they said, Brian, we're going to church tomorrow. Would you like to go with us? He said, yeah, I'd be glad to. Again, thinking they're going to the Catholic Church. Glenn didn't tell him. They didn't tell him. He comes that first Sunday, hears the gospel, is wonderfully saved. Brian's been a pastor of a Baptist church now for over 40 years. Where did it all start? It started with a little, kind, loving little girl named Elaine. And when God changed her life, she began to speak for the Lord. And the Lord changed a whole family and many more. Elmer and Joanna John were bus captains for decades in that church after they got saved, reaching boys and girls like their girls for many, many years. It all started because of a little maid in this story. You may not think you're much in the economy of God in this world, but if you'll be faithful and you'll let your light shine and you'll speak out and be a testimony God can use you to reach dozens and dozens and dozens of others by God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story in the Bible and the miracle that you did in the life of Naaman. Only one in the, New, in the Old Testament who ever found relief from leprosy. It took a miracle. And Lord, it takes a miracle for us to be saved. And I pray this morning, if there's someone here that does not know you as Savior, Lord, today they would lay aside their good deeds and lay aside their religion, lay aside the things that they might think would get them to heaven, and simply come in faith and trust Christ as Savior. Lord, we'd be thrilled to help them know that they're on their way to heaven. And Lord, for those of us that are here to worship you as believers, Help us realize when we step out of that world tomorrow that we have a testimony. And that testimony can have great effect if we will just keep our eyes upon you and speak out for you and live as you want us to live. And so guide our thoughts now in this invitation time, I pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let's stand together and our penis is going to play. And as the piano is playing today, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I encourage you to come and meet Pastor Haynes here at the front? Just say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm on my way to heaven. And I'd like to make sure of that. He would know exactly what you mean, and someone could slip aside in just a few moments, show you how you can go from, I think I'm going to heaven, to I know I'm going to heaven. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If that's you, just slip out and come. If as a Christian, God has spoken to your heart today, about being that little maid. Your circumstances may not be great today. In fact, they may be quite negative. There may be a lot of things going on in your life that you're disappointed in or maybe discouraged about, but your testimony can still count for Christ. Determine to be that faithful Christian that God wants you to be. This invitation is for us. Respond to God and His Word today.